or maybe it won't. Oh, let's keep up. I'm here. <laughs> I don't think we get an intro today. There it is. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning and welcome to this episode of Week in Review. We're off to a great start, Bob, so uh, I'm not uh, I'm not, <laughs> not much hope for the rest of the show. Fire that board up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've got, um, we're back on track, which is great. Second week in a row back. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's a good thing, right? You've got to build up that forward moving momentum or whatever. So I'm happy that we're back on. Um couple of announcements before we get into what we're going to talk about today, which is is interesting. We've got a lot of good stories today. Um, first, I want to thank today's sponsor, and today's show is sponsored by Audible, and uh, Audible is providing us or our listeners with a special link. If you go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio, you get to download a book absolutely free. Um, if you look at the YouTube channel, I had recently done a book review on It's Your Ship by Captain Michael Abershoff. And um, that book is available. So if you check out the YouTube channel, you're interested in the book, you're interested in the interview that I did with Captain Abershoff, and you want to get the book, if you use that code, you can get it for free. So I want to thank uh, Audible for providing that to us. In the next coming weeks, too, yeah, we're going to be introducing some new sponsors, which are, are great, um, Paychecks and Golfsmith and a couple other new uh, new sponsors. So we're excited about that. And um, today, we've got a good, a good bunch of stories. We're going to talk about Stevie Wonder, right? How can you go wrong with Stevie Wonder? And you we've can't. Got, no, we've got some social media faux pas, which are always entertaining. And it, it just, I don't know, it just nobody ever seems to, to get the message. So we're going to talk about that. Adrian Peterson, a uh, woman loses her mansion for employing illegal workers. We've got uh, an inmate who's paralyzed. Suing the prison, we'll talk about that. Uh, suing Target, legalization of marijuana in Washington, D.C. So uh, why don't we get right into it? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like people just don't get it when it comes to, to, to social media. If you don't want to defend it in court, stop writing it. And, you know, and, and there may be a lot of challenges that come out of these things, but you know what, right now, don't be the test case. Uh, a middle school teacher in Louisiana claims in a lawsuit that she's been harassed and has lived in fear of losing her job after sharing a Facebook post critical of the Common Core teaching method. Come on, who hasn't? Deborah Vales is a teacher at the Pineville Junior High School in Rapids a Parish School District. Pineville Junior High School is one of many schools in 43 states that have adopted Common Core standards and in return receives financing from the U.S. Department of Education for that. Common Core widely criticized for uh, seemingly 
illogical math and language arts teaching practices, according to the lawsuit. Now, heartbreaking pictures of little girls anguished with tears in their eyes trying to complete seemingly illogical common core math assignments that even the child's parents cannot understand have surfaced widely in the media, media, according to the lawsuit. However, before school on September 14th of 2013, the teacher, Valve, viewed such a picture on Facebook and shared it on her own Facebook page at 1 p.m. that afternoon. Val says she received her first ever written reprimand when the teacher of the school, Dr. Dana Nolan, became aware of the photo on the social media site and said it made Valleys appear to be anti-Common Core. Now, Dr. Dana Nolan reported, reportedly told Vales that uh, you work for the public. You do not have an opinion. You are not to discuss your opinion in any way in public. Ouch. Upon receiving the written reprimand, felt violated, she says, but complied by deleting the post because she was afraid of losing her job naturally, the lawsuit says. Meanwhile, in an unrelated investigation into the school board's allegedly all unlawful grading practices, media, excuse me, resulted in media interviews with 12 teachers. This is a separate incident. Same school. They asked, uh, <laughs> the teachers asked to remain anonymous because they were afraid of being fired for talking to the media. The interviews resulted in information about plaintiff being reprimanded for posting her opinion about Common Core on her Facebook page. So now it's out in the, the entire public. Everybody knows. On October 8th, However, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal excuse me, heard of the school board's policies and issued an executive order. The order states in part that as part of the ongoing discussion among state and local education officials, teachers, parents, and stakeholders regarding classroom curriculum and testing, and as part of the larger discussion of the quality of Louisiana's educational system, legal guarantees afforded to all citizens shall be maintained and provided to teachers. So now we've got a little battle. Because of the executive order, plaintiff is frequently harassed at work and fears for her job, the lawsuit says. She says administrators now visit her classroom with frequency and that her job title has been changed to teacher of emotionally disturbed students. She says based on what her colleagues have told her, rumors are always good, that position will be dissolved by the end of the year and she will be let go. Now, prior to the reposting of the information pertaining to Common Core, according to the lawsuit on her Facebook page, Plaintiff used to have a stellar personal file. Now she has received three additional documented conferences from the defendant, Dana Nolan, for petty reasons motivated by retaliation for the plaintiff, according to the lawsuit. Vales fears losing losing her job and says if she were to post anything on Facebook again or speak out about a matter of public concern. Now, according to courthousenews.com, public employees do not surrender their First Amendment rights by reason for their of their employment. The First Amendment protects them public's employees' right to speak as a citizen addressing matters concerned that are public, according to the lawsuit. Peter, where does it sit? There's so much going on here. This is such a, a complex... Oh. This is this is there's just... I'm going to blow your mind right now. Here we go. You ready? All right. I'm ready. So, first of all, what's unique about this is that it's obviously a public um, entity that she is criticizing. So, if this was a private employer... You should be really, really walking a fine line. So let's just look at that for one second because sure. the law for social media is is primarily something that's established by the National Labor Relations Board. And those of you who remember the heyday of the unions, you know, um, union organization and that sort of thing, you'll remember that the National Labor Relations Board sort of was born out of that movement and it was meant to protect people who were coming together as employees to complain about their working conditions or their pay. 
And they wanted to allow this. They called it concerted activity. They wanted to allow these employees an opportunity to complain about pay and other things related to the conditions of their work. Now, not about their boss. They don't like the boss. The boss is a jerk. You know, it all dealt with working conditions, whether or not conditions were safe. So now, you know, unions have somewhat died out. Uh, There still are some active unions. But for the most part, everybody in this country is uh, either a contract or an at-will employee, and most of them are at-will. So the National Labor Relations Board, having nothing to do, jumped in and decided that now they're (laughs) going to take over social media. And so they've enacted the National Labor Relations Act, and it covers social media. So the same way that if a group of employees went out and they talked in the parking lot about how you know poor, poorly they were paid or the unsafe working conditions, those communications were protected. You couldn't be fired because of that. They've now extended that to social media. So where one or more employees are gathered together online, Facebook, Twitter, however you want to do it, and they are talking about working conditions, safety, pay, um, overtime, any of those issues, that's protected concerted activity, and you can't fire an employee for doing that. So the employee is talking about how you don't get paid enough, and this is you know terrible because we don't make enough money, and we're working so hard, you can't fire them. But a private employer can fire an employee who is just criticizing or griping um, about the company. And, you know, there's something that, that I'm going to talk to you about in a second, but before I get to that, um, the, the point here is that with a private company, you say something that's not protected, you can be fired, hands down. This is, is unique because it's a public entity, and, and she's really criticizing the public school curriculum, which is not just an individual thing, not just a, a private employer thing. This, you know, reaches a lot further. So, you know, it's really interesting here what is going to happen um, because, I mean, there's that fine line. Is this protected concerted activity? I don't think so. She's not complaining about working conditions. I mean, I guess you could argue that common core curriculum is a working condition. I don't know. That's a stretch. Um, So I'm not exactly sure where this is going to go, but I think that ultimately... um, this lawsuit's going to go nowhere is is really i think what's going on here is she actually criticizing the government that's what's so hard to understand is she is she saying because she's criticizing common core but is common core a a something derived from the public entity from the government is common core something that's created because schools throughout the country use a common core curriculum so it's it's difficult to to say, oh, she's criticizing us, or she's criticizing the entity. But her lawsuit really stems from this, this retaliation. It's a SEPA claim, right? Well, it's similar to a SEPA claim, which is Conscientious mm-hmm. Employee Protection Act. Um, she's saying that she was retaliated against, that ultimately she complained to the school board, she said these people were harassing her, and they did nothing about it. So the lawsuit itself, while I don't have a copy of the complaint, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the lawsuit itself is focused around the retaliatory activity or the discriminatory activity, the hostile work environment that was created, more so than the social media issue. Because I think the social media one is very confusing, and there's a lot of stuff you'd have to sift through in order to find where your cause of action is. 
But the other thing, the retaliation is easy. Now, this is interesting, Bob. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. this, um, but I just put a post up last night. But a, a tweet gets an employee fired before she even starts the job. Did you hear about this one? I did not. All right. So this is this is really um, sort of the best explanation of what I'm talking about with protected activity versus just griping online. So there's this applicant who gets a job at uh, a pizza place in Texas, Jets Pizza in Mansfield, Texas. And the night before she starts the job, she posts, Ew, I start this effing ass job tomorrow, followed by <laughs> seven <laughs> emojis. Right? And so, I mean, she's going to work, right? Her brand new job. And that's what she posts online the night before she starts her job. Well, it just so happens that her boss, the manager, uh, his name was Robert Wapel. He saw the tweet and he wrote back and he said, "No, you don't start this effing ass job today. I just fired you. Good luck with your no money, no job life." <laughs> <laughs> that that is a a really good example oh. of how what she's saying has nothing to do with working conditions, nothing to do with fairness or unfairness. She's just complaining that she doesn't want to work at Jet's Pizza, and then, of course, she yep. gets fired. Now, no claim there. She's got nothing. And that really hits home the point that you've got to be careful what you say and complain about online because while the First Amendment protects you, freedom of speech, it doesn't say that you have to, to keep a job. You can is be it, Is it kind of driven toward defamation? Because when you're complaining, especially in that situation, you're defaming or degrading the product? You know, it, it, it's more of a brand or company image protection than mm-hmm. it is defamation because um, it's hard to win a defamation case unless you've got all okay. your ducks in a row. Um, we've talked about that before where, you know, they're not the easiest sure. claims to win. If somebody were to post on social media something that was really intentionally aimed at hurting someone, like let's say that um, the girl because she doesn't seem to be much of a brain surgeon, goes back and posts something else <laughs> online about, about you know, uh, Robert Wapel. You know, and she says something about him that is clearly defamatory, something that uh, okay. will interfere right with his, his ability to, to continue his job. Like, let's say that she were to post, this guy is a child molester, or this guy is a thief. Now, that is defamation, because... A, it's not true. B, it was spread out to multiple people, and now it's, mm-hmm. it's got this negative impact. He can point to damages. So in that instance, if somebody were to do something like that, that's defamation. Mm-hmm. But why he fired her is simply because she spoke out in a derogatory fashion against his company, against uh, you know Jet Pizza, Jet's Pizza. And, and as an employer, you don't have to put up with that. If she went online and simply said, I love Jet's Pizza, but my boss is a jerk, she could still get fired. So social media is not the place to vent if you want to keep your job. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know if she did it, but I wonder if she tagged Jet's Pizza in the post and that led to the discovery. <laughs> that would be really stupid, but I couldn't figure out how this guy figured it out because um, it doesn't say. I, I looked at, at a variety of news sources to see if I could figure out how he, he intercepted the tweet, but... 
you know, it's so it's so easy because a lot of times, especially with Twitter, you don't really if you don't pay attention, you don't really know who's following you. You could get a sure. follower, you know, one o'clock in the morning and maybe you don't see it. So for all you know, because there's nothing, by the way, that pro- prohibits or prevents an employer from following an employee on Twitter. So he could have hired this girl and then his first action after hiring her was to friend her or, or follow her on Twitter so that mm-hmm. he could see she was, was posting and here he caught her. So, you know, that's not a terribly bad idea if you're an employer. No. But um, there's a very terrible idea to post something like what she did. Very stupid. <laughs> well, we'll keep learning. We, we, we won't figure it out today. No. <laughs> Nor will no. other types of discrimination. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's odd that it continues sometimes. TGI Fridays, of all people, canned black waiters for Latinos, according to a lawsuit. According to NYDailyNews.com, nearly all of the black waitstaff at a Manhattan TGI Fridays were replaced with light-skinned workers, mostly Hispanics. When the chain closed a busy Midtown outpost and opened a new store a block away, according to a lawsuit filed Thursday in Bronx Supreme Court. Just one black staff member was uh, rehired from the eatery, which was near Penn Station. When the company moved to a new location one block east on 234th Street in December, ex-employees charged in the class action discrimination suit. When the workers protested, a restaurant manager allegedly told one of them told one of them that he preferred Hispanic staffers because they, because they quote unquote work harder. According to the suit, it was their opinion that black people were lazy. Charged plaintiff Lisa Baker, 48, a waitress who says her old manager told her that her job serving guests was unavailable at the new location. We weren't even given a chance, she said. The suit alleges managers openly referred to the old location as quote unquote the ghetto store or the quote-unquote Black Fridays, and wanted to rid themselves of that reputation. Former employees said that they were promised a fair shot at reapplying for jobs at the new restaurant, a 15,000-square-foot franchise on 34th Street, but never heard from their old employers. Plaintiff Tony Pringle, 42, said they knew exactly what they were doing. He earned $850 a week as a waiter at the old location and was not rehired. Says they're basically not hiring blacks. A spokesman for Friday's owners, National Restaurants Management Incorporated, a family-run business long known for as the Reese Organization, said the company is proud of its 75-year tradition of positive employee relations with a diverse workforce. The restaurant in question has a workforce, including managers, that is more than 80% non-white, spokesman Pat Smith said in a statement. Now, lawyers for the former waitstaff are seeking $500,000 for each employee, total of $5 million for loss of wages, emotional distress, and punitive damages. <laughs> Lawyer Matthew Blitz says... The only reason these people are not working right now is because of their skin color. Heck, this isn't the 1950s. How are they? Is this provable? Or is there, what, I mean, what grounds does TGI Fridays have not to offer those employees new jobs? You know, the, the issue focuses on what you're going to see in the court case, what testimony is going to come out. So you've got you've to take a complaint, a legal complaint that initiates a lawsuit with a little bit of a grain of salt, because it's written by the plaintiff. And they're not going to say things that don't um, reach the criteria that you're supposed to have in a complaint. So, of course, you're going to see things and words that are um, very aggressive, you know, negligently and intentionally and without, you know, care or concern for others or in violation of our civil rights. All those terms have to be in there. So... A, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But 
the statements that are in here, you know, it was their opinion that black people were lazy. If that can be proven, and you'd prove that through testimony, and, and if you've got a class action um, or even just multiple plaintiffs, you're going to have, for the most part, all these plaintiffs, because they're looking for the same outcome, they're all going to support one another, right? Sometimes sure. it's true. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not true. But if you can prove that, if you can prove that um, that was sort of the, the outlook, you know, the Black Fridays, that would help them significantly um, because, all right, A, they are members of a protected class because race is a protected class when you're dealing with discrimination or hostile work environment. And it, it, it sounds to me, just based upon the complaint, like they might have a good shot at getting some money. Now, I don't think they're each going to get $500,000, but what I would suspect happens is that the Reese organization, they're going to settle. I, I just, you know, this is one oh. of those cases where you don't want this going to trial, right? Because remember Chick-fil-A, what was that, like last spring or something, or even the spring before? Yeah. So it wasn't long ago. Right. And you've got people that um, will now never eat at, at Chick-fil-A again. You don't want, as Fridays, that to be out there. I mean, it's bad enough that the story is out because the complaint was filed, but now you don't want to be the one that takes this to trial and then goes to depositions, which will ultimately be released to the public because it's it's not um, under seal. They're, they're public records. You know, you get a company sure. like TMZ or somebody who goes out there and digs up the transcripts, and, and God only knows what somebody could testify to. That would be so damaging. So I think that in a case like this where there's there's some question. I mean, the plaintiffs, this, this could be true. Um, I think that they're going to ultimately settle. If it is true, then this is a primary example of how a large company that does seem to have a diverse workforce. I mean, when I go into a Fridays, it's filled with all kinds of people. There's, you know, that's, mm -hmm. the, the diversity doesn't seem to be an issue. But if you've got one location where your management is saying things that are inappropriate, you as the restaurant owner, you know, whether you're a chain, whether you're a single guy or, or, or gal, it doesn't make a difference. If you don't have control over your managers, they can get you in just as much trouble as they're in. So, and that's a good know, point. Yeah, no matter what size you are, you, you could have problems. Right. But I think for, for me, if, if, if Fridays were my client, I would want to say to them, listen, you've got to think about uh, public relations. You've got to think about image protection here. And Fridays is not a problem. But maybe this manager was. Maybe this location was because of the people that were working there. You don't want this getting bigger and bigger. Let's settle it and try to get rid of it. That's what I would, would consider doing. Yeah, but, you don't want that, a lot of the testimony to get out there. And, and regardless of it's true or not, it's just hearing it over and over again, what is being said. Is that right? That, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's why you know, so, many, so many people, when, when you're dealing with, with clients, they say to you, oh, but it's not fair. It's not right. And I, I have a, a hard time sometimes getting through to people because the law is not fair. It has nothing to do sometimes with what's right or wrong. In business law, it has to do with what's economical. What is going to save you money? What's going to increase or 
um, you know, not hurt your reputation. Those are factors that come into play. Even when something, I mean, you could, and I'm not saying this is true because I've read this complaint and I, I tend to think that some of these things did happen. But for argument's sake, you could have this, this uh, group of plaintiffs that have made this whole thing up. Now, you know, if you're, if you're Fridays, you've got to decide, well, you know, is the manager stellar? Has the manager always hired African-Americans or Hispanics? And, and can we go back and show that this manager was great? Because if we can, then that might be a case that you'd want to defend because now you can show the public how supportive you were of minorities. But if you can't do that, even if it's wrong, maybe you settle just to save face. No. <laughs> well, be interesting to see what happens there because I don't think uh, I, I don't I don't know that Fridays is going to go out and take the hit like you said. So it'll be yeah. uh, shuffled under the rug. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, what's that? I said, yep. Yeah, no, it's but you know what? Sometimes <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's the best business decision. Sure. Save you a little bit of money in the long run. Yeah. Um, speaking of business decisions, sometimes it bleeds over into healthcare. The Ebola survivor, Nina Pham, remember her, the nurse from the Dallas yeah. hospital that contracted Ebola, is going to sue Texas Health Resources, according to the Dallas Morning News. Experimental drugs and special care helped make Nina Pham Ebola-free. Ta-da! But today she fears that she may never escape the deadly disease. The 26-year-old nurse says she has nightmares, body aches, and insomnia as a result of contracting the disease from a patient she cared for last fall at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. She says the hospital and its parent company, Texas Health Resources, failed her and her colleagues who cared for Thomas Eric Duncan, the first person in the United States with Ebola. That's, is that going to be hard to prove? There was, it was all over the media about what did and didn't happen. You know, I have nightmares, body aches, and insomnia. Is there somebody that I can sue? <laughs> are, you, are you fearful of getting Ebola? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I read the hot zone when I was working in the city years ago. Um, and that I scared smell me. a class action. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Making Sue Robin Cook. Um, there we right. go. Here's my take on this one. I don't like this. Um, I don't like what I think she's doing. Here's my take on this. I I was watching a, a, a it was a news story over the weekend, and they had her on, and her whole statement is, I just want to protect everybody and to make them aware that our hospitals are not providing their workers with the the best training, and I I'm on a mission. So in my mind, right, my cynical mind, I see this as here is her claim to fame. She is going to be the one that writes the book. She's going to be the one that's out there telling all the hospitals how they can make things better. Now, I don't know anything about this woman other than what I've read in the media, but, and this is not to say that she's not important, I don't think she has been a nurse for that long. I think she's mm -hmm. relatively young, and I think that, um, again, my cynical mind, that the reason that this lawsuit has taken a little bit of time to develop is because I would put money on the fact that somebody approached her, whether it was a lawyer, whether it was a, a marketing company or um, some sort of, of agent, and said, listen, you're sitting on a gold mine because you're going to be able to write a book, you're going to be able to tell the story. Then you make it your quest to protect people 
So that's where I see this going. I don't really think that hospitals are responsible for what happened with Ebola because it was the first time that we've ever seen it. So, you know, what do you think about that? Did, well, you know, and I'm thinking back, and I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm thinking back to the, I'll use the term guidelines, uh, for lack of better, that the CDC put out. And then it makes me ask the question as, what obligation does the hospital have to follow said guidelines, and did the hospital do that? Yeah. And if they yeah. did... Does she does she have something to stand on? Yeah, and you know it, it's it's interesting because I think there's some people out there that would take your comment and say, well, why isn't she suing the CDC? Well, the answer is because, and that's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> the the hurdles that you have to jump through to sue a federal agency that has the clout as the CDC, it's you know one in a million that you're going to be able to to get a, a shot at suing them. <laughs> so she's going for the easy target, which is the hospital, mm-hmm. because, you know, the hospital, again, making a business decision, the hospital may say, all right, well, we have a breach of protocol. Let's just settle with her. But this mm-hmm. is the, the springboard. This is going to launch her career. She is never going to have to be a nurse again. She is going to be the spokesperson for hospital training and safety. She's going to be on the, um, you know, the speaking tours. This is it for her. This has made her career. She should be thanking Ebola because Ebola is going to make her a very rich woman. That's my prediction. Yeah. Well, here's the the, uh, pursuing question is she's not the only one. She's not, but she's got a lot going for her. A, she's personable. B, she's likable and friendly looking. And C, you know, she was from day one the most outspoken of all of them. So sure. that's why I think that people probably have picked up and said, wow, this girl's got something. Because you could have a story to tell and you might not be that type of charismatic or engaging person and nobody's going to want to see your story. But this one, and she's very aggressive. And, and look, I am not trying to um, belittle the fact that she was put in a very dangerous situation. Okay, she was. Mm-hmm. And and I'm also not saying that the hospital did everything right because they didn't. Uh, whether or not this is something that they should pay out millions of dollars on is another story. I think that they'll ultimately settle. They'll give her some money. Um, but I see this more as a way for her to, to sort of just launch a career. And I, I just... Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I guess you can say, well, she she suffered through it, so good for her. And then I think that the other side of that coin is she's taking advantage of this, and she's going to make herself a lot of money for what? But you know, that's for for you to decide. But um, that's where at least I think it's going to go. We'll see if she disappears. Yes, I think that's unlikely. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Uh, courthouse news. What's that? There's got to be a book in the works. Got to be. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Uh, people will buy it. Uh, courthousenews.com, once again, telling giving us some good information, but this time telling us about a prison who deserves the blame for an inmate's paralysis. 
My first thought is if you hadn't gone to prison in the first place. But anyway, the New York prison system failed to prevent an inmate with a spinal condition from falling and becoming a paraplegic in appeals court has ruled. Sergio Black was a healthy 35-year-old ex-Marine who lifted weights and played basketball in prison. Of course he did. After he began suffering injuries while participating in these activities in the summer of 2006, however, Black collided that November with another basketball player. With the inmate's neck bent backward, the prison doctor diagnosed Black with what's commonly known as a stinger, a minor nerve injury to the spine, Black claimed. Black said the doctor ordered an MRI when his condition failed to improve. It revealed that Black suffered from spinal stenosis and have no idea. I should have looked it up. Do you know how to <laughs> myelomalacia? I'll go with. I like that. Spinal myelomalacia. Malacia. There we go. Slower than myelomalacia in January. Spinal stenosis is a narrowing of the spinal canal that puts pressure on the backbone. Now, myelo <laughs> excuse me, myelomalacia is a softening of said spinal cord. Before Black could undergo the neurological consultation that the doctor ordered, Black fell in his prison cell and became a paraplegic with a limited use of his hands. In Black's complaint against the state of New York for medical malpractice, his expert blamed the doctor for prescribing Neurotin, which has a side effect of dizziness. The expert added that Black was prone to falling because of the spinal condition, even without the medication. Court of a court of claims judge in Syracuse, however, ruled for Black, who was released from prison shortly thereafter and passed away, sadly. His estate responded to the state's appeal. On February 13th, the New York Appellate Division's Rochester-based Rochester Fourth Department upheld the trial court's ruling. They quoted, Decedent's expert testified credibly, based upon his review of Decedent's medical records and his examination of Decedent, that the prison physician deviated from accepted standards of, of medical practice when he failed to recognize the urgency of Decedent's condition and to make a prompt referral to a neurologist, the unsigned opinion states. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess this probably wouldn't happen if you just kept them in their cell 24-7. Yeah, and then you end up with, um, you know, a, a cruel and unusual punishment lawsuit <laughs> under the Eighth Amendment. So it's true. <laughs> this, this one, this one's interesting. Okay, um, I think that there's the the general view. Uh, well, you know, if you weren't in jail, this wouldn't have happened. And then there's mm -hmm. the other side of that, which is maybe because because you know, all right, there's still those people that believe the idea of of punishment of prison is to help somebody um, see their, the, the errors in their ways and, and mend themselves so that they can, can sort of be uh, reintroduced into society. So there's Rehabilitation. That, yeah, there's still that, that belief. There are others that believe it's just punishment, and then there are some that believe that it is of no value whatsoever. Um, but regardless of how you feel about it, the law still protects inmates. Um, sure. It's a it's a it's a slightly higher standard, but inmates still have the right to file civil rights lawsuits if something were to happen to them. And I, I've got the um, slip opinion, which is um, the report from the judge, the the order of the judge, and and mm -hmm. there's some in here that are interesting. In the conclusion, the, the judge states that the record establishes that the prison physician defined the level of urgency that triggered the administrative protocols for scheduling appointments. So in other words, there are these administrative protocols in prison. You, it's not like what we have out here in the free world. You know, the, the physician has to determine 
What is the level of care needed? How urgent is this person's condition? Because before they can go get them treated outside of a prison with an MRI or another uh, test or take them to a specialist, they need to make sure that this inmate isn't just pulling a fast one. So mm-hmm. uh, those are the administrative protocols that they're, they're talking about. Then the judge goes on to say, and the lack of urgency that the physician reported resulted in the scheduling of a referral beyond December 18th, and that um, had he received adequate medical care, that he might not have been in the condition that he was. So, you know, the, the court's essentially saying that the failure to recognize the urgency and the risks of his condition or the failure of prompt efficient internal procedures um, ultimately to this condition. So the evidence that was, was proven throughout the case makes this case a good one simply because uh, a, a regular doctor would have looked at this guy and said, you know what, I think he needs some follow-up or some additional um, additional work. Even if, if it was just a matter of the physician trying to protect himself from a malpractice claim, right? You know, you, you always get these doctors. If you go to a general practitioner for something and they refer you to a specialist, <laughs> A, they're doing it because it's not in their, um, it's in, not in their, their bag of tricks, but B, they do it because they want to protect themselves too. So here you've got a doctor. And you know what? There's part of me that feels badly for the doctor because you're the physician that's in charge of all of these inmates and you don't know which ones are telling you the truth and which ones are not. So I think that being a prison physician is, is difficult. I don't think it's an easy task because now who do, you, who do you trust? Who do you not trust? A lot of the people that are in there, unfortunately, are in there for crimes that have involved um, you know, not telling the truth about things. So, <laughs> you know, I think it's a tough job, but I think in this case, um, clearly the evidence supports the fact that he did not do the job that he should have and that he didn't report the urgency. So I think it's probably a good decision, even though it's sometimes hard to, to swallow. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I know the fact that uh, sometimes uh, inmates have better health care than what you get in the free world, per se. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, well, but in, in the same, and I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, I'm the guy that says, "Gosh, if you hadn't gone to prison, you wouldn't be in that situation." But in all honesty, I understand also that as the state, and this is our process, we have taken control of this individual. We are now responsible for that individual. And something happens, yeah, guess what? That's our fault. And now we need to get better because of it. Yeah, and you know, I I like because. I, I agree with what you're thinking. I mean, I, I think that way too sometimes. But then I also come around and I say to myself, you know what, what about the one person that's in there accidentally? It was a mistake. The sure. the oh, yeah. got it wrong. What about that person? Because, you know, you always hear about those people, people getting released after 15 years because they didn't do mm-hmm. it. You know, so that's how I try to make myself feel better. <laughs> See, I use the omelet scenario. The omelet scenario. You gotta bring a couple eggs. You gotta bring a couple (laughs) eggs to make an omelet. (laughs) As uncaring as that seems. Uh, Speaking of uncaring, man, talking about prison as well. Uh, A woman loses a mansion for employing an illegal immigrant, per se, or a worker. It doesn't seem as easy as that when you read the story from courthousenews.com. Upholding an Albany woman's conviction for harboring an illegal alien, the Second Circuit Court ordered her to forfeit her 34-room mansion on a bluff overlooking the Mohawk River. 
Peter's dialing the phone of his real estate agent at this point. Yeah. Annie George, <laughs> there's a deal. Annie George, who wanted her 2013 conviction overturned, cited a decision later that year by the Second Circuit that said she more clearly spelled out the meaning of harboring than the judge did in her trial. She also contended that forfeiture was too harsh of a penalty. George, also known as Annie Koloff and Sajimal George, which I don't know why she gets to have aliases, was accused of harboring a Valsama Malti, who was a native of India, who came to the U.S. on a visa to live in New York City and work for a designated employee of the United Nations. Now, Malti had become an illegal alien when she left that position to begin working for George and her husband in 2005 as a live-in domestic care to you know, to care for the couple's six children. Now, Mathai worked for the family until 2011 when a son in India contacted a human trafficking hotline concerned that his mother was being exploited. Federal authorities removed her from that home. Mathai later testified that she worked 18-hour days with no time off and slept in a closet. My thought is, it's a big house. It might be a big closet. No, just kidding. Annie George was indicted in 2012 on one count of harboring an illegal alien for private financial gain, but was convicted after a five-day trial of harboring without the private gain enhancement. Lucky she didn't get imprisonment. She was sentenced to eight months of home detention. Ooh, that had been tough. Five years probation and was ordered to turn over the mansion. On appeal, she challenged the instructions given to the jury at trial on the meaning of harboring particularly in light of the Second Circuit Court's 2013 decision in the U.S. versus Vargas Corden that clarified the crime involved both sheltering an illegal alien and also preventing his or her detention by immigra- or, excuse me, detection by immigration officials. And there's the difference. George contended the concealment aspect of harboring was not conveyed to the jury at her trial. But the Second Court disagreed on Wednesday, saying the district court adequately conveyed both the concealment and substantial facilitation aspects of harboring identified in the Vargas Cordon. Now, evidence that George acted to hide Mathai from authorities was overwhelming, according to Judge Raggy. Mathai was coached by George to present herself as a visiting family friend and told not to discuss her immigration status with anyone, according to the court. George also discouraged her from traveling to India for a wedding, telling her that her trip could lead to her arrest and deportation. Now, also, she failed to document her employment with the IRS, never filing the required W-2s or other paperwork, according to the court. Now, because of a conviction on harboring, harboring carries a mandatory forfeiture of real or personal property used to, the facil- to facilitate the crime, George was ordered to turn over the Rexford mansion, where Mathai worked for three years, and she was in the George's employee. George argued that forfeiture violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines, but the appeals panel was not sympathetic. She harbored an illegal alien in her home for more than five years in order to secure the alien's unauthorized labor, the judge wrote. In doing so, she was not only thwarting federal immigration law, but also invading uh, federal minimum wage and tax laws. This is not a case in which the harshness of the forfeiture so exceeds the gravity of the offense of conviction as to indicate gross disproportionality relative to the Constitution. Wow. Uh, that's a pretty heavy price to pay. <laughs> it really is. You know, the, the most important thing, though, to take away from this is for people who are here um, on a visa, because I, I think that this is a, an area, I get a lot of questions about this. This is an area a lot of, of a lot of confusion. You know, some people go and they get a visa on their own. Others use an attorney. But, you know, oftentimes when you're coming from another country, you don't have the money. You think you can do it on your own. 
Um, I would venture to say that a lot of the people who are doing it on their own are doing it with a group of friends or, or like-minded individuals and trying to save themselves some money so they muddle through it. And they often overlook the fact that once you, you're here for a work visa and you're here for a job or a position, once that job fires you, once that position is over, once your project that you're working on is done, you cannot stay here. Your visa is repealed. It's taken back. You have to. You have a set amount of time to either get another job, but you get a notice and you have to do something. You either have to do something to stay here or you've got to go back. And a lot of times I think people are under this misconception that once they get here and, and they're working, when that job ends or they get fired, they can still stay here because they were here on a well, visa. The, yeah, the president tells them that. No, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. That, that's not the case. You've got to go back to where you came from um, and, and or get another job within the time period that's allotted. So I think that, that you know, here, this is most likely um, George's fault. I mean, this is most likely somebody who says, wow, we can take advantage, we can get free labor, we can, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, you know, go sleep in our walk-in closet. So it, it, I think, personally, I think that whether you were an illegal or any other kind of person or worker, this woman took advantage of, of the worker. So does she deserve to lose her mansion? Yeah, I think so. Plus, I don't have one. Oh, no, from an... From an employer's standpoint, when you start to get involved with uh, work visas, and so is that something you have to is it how 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 much trouble can employers get into not obviously this person did something completely different but if you're on the level you 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 genuinely hire someone that is come in on a work visa are there some hoops that you should be jumping through with legal assistance or is it very spelled out no it's it's really more no. employee no it's 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 a little bit of both and um <laughs> you see this a lot in tech companies a lot of tech companies, staffing companies, um, because they're bringing in talent from India. They're bringing in people from China, uh, Indonesia, and they don't often know what to do beyond getting them here. Because when you're the employer and you're going to bring somebody in on a visa, you have to sponsor them. But that legal oh. sponsorship, yeah, that puts you on the paperwork. So... You know, what you file with your name on it, when you're vouching essentially uh, for somebody you really don't know, you're bringing in talent and, you know, you're going to put your name on the application, I recommend that you always have that reviewed by an attorney. Not, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to go spend a ton of money. You don't need to have an attorney do it for you if you're comfortable doing it because a lot of uh, employers, especially staffing agencies, they deal with this all the time especially those that staff tech people. But mm -hmm. you should at least have somebody look at it because it is not an easy process, um, and there are so many pitfalls. You, know, you have to report that your, your employee has either been terminated or lost their job uh, or has quit. You are, are responsible. There was, um, there was a, a family that I was working with years ago that had brought in an au pair. And uh, I can't remember. It was from some European nation, France or, or Italy or somewhere. Hopefully, out there. Uh, Norway and 
she was about six foot. <laughs> so they bring in the au pair, and the au pair somehow is communicating with somebody in another state. And ultimately, at some point, she she takes off. And this happens all the oh. time. This is a common occurrence. So you bring in the au pair, they stay for a little while, they communicate with somebody else, and then they leave, and then you never see or hear from them again. <laughs> but you've got an obligation to report that. You know, you've got to, to tell somebody. And in this case, uh, this family called the Department of Homeland Security as well as immigration, and they, they you know, met their requirement for reporting this, and then they were free and clear of this. But, sure. uh, you know, there's a lot that comes into play that you really need somebody to help you look at it and and decide what do you do, is it worth it, you know, if it is worth it for you, then is it being done the right way? And you really need an immigration attorney because it is. And obviously, a, in this case, look at how much you could lose if you don't do it right. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't do it right, I mean, here's an employer. I know it's a, a private employer and, they, and she lost her, her house. Sure. But even as a, a, an incorporated entity or an LLC, you're going to have the same sort of consequences. You're out of business. God only knows what else, because if they can pierce the corporate veil, you know, let's say, for example, you've got somebody that's uh, working at your business and you ask them to come to your house to help you with something. Does that pierce the corporate veil? Are they now able to come after you because of that one time? You know, we see this a lot with um, with cleanup companies. You know, um, there's a lot of chains that you see advertised on TV. Uh, we also see it a lot with contractors. And a lot of times they'll bring in guys that are clearly illegal, um, and and they get away with it for a very very long time because there's just so much of that in the country. Um, but if you get caught, you're in serious trouble. There was a um, a contractor that had come in here a couple years ago and wanted to know if his guys could get uh, brought into the country. And so, you know, we looked at it from an immigration standpoint. Let's see, what's the proper procedure? Are these guys able to, to, to get in? But what you found is that they've been here for 12 years, which is a problem. Um, they also had criminal records. Uh, <laughs> Minor things, but like hit and runs. Well, that's not too minor, but traffic violations, some hit and runs, and that sort of thing. So these guys are living. I, mean, I could never imagine. Could you imagine living like that? Like fearful that <laughs> no. someone's going to come crashing into your house? Not at all. But, you know, the the answer to that contractor's question is, no, you really can't do anything. Because in order to apply for any sort of uh, visa or citizenship or anything like that, you've got to go back to the country of origin. And then you've got to start the process there. And the United States, knowing that you've been here for 12 years, knowing that you've got a criminal record, they're not going to allow you back. And oftentimes, the country that you come from might not allow you back. Uh, and, and this is across the board. This is how it works. Uh, a few years ago, one of our corporate clients was doing a, a job transfer. They were within the same company, but they were from England coming to the U.S. And oh, okay. He had to go back to the U.K., stay there until his immigration paper was approved, you know, and, and do everything there with, um, with, with the way that it was, it was done by the, uh, the embassy and whatever, and then he was able to come back. So you know, there's this protocol that's very, very strict. 
And ultimately, the contractor that I'm talking about, uh, I think he just kept his guys here, and they all keep their heads down and their fingers crossed. But if those guys get picked up, they're never coming back. And if sure. the employer is found to, because he knows, I mean, clearly this is knowing, that is problematic for the employer too. So while you can get away with it, some people get away with it forever. If you get caught, you are in a lot of trouble. Immigration is really nothing to screw around with. You know, I'll tell you another quick story. There was a, a fascinating uh, guy that had approached me probably about five years ago. He was from the UK and he was living in Nevada with his wife and his his children. And his wife and children were American. He was from the UK. He had a business dispute ongoing in federal court in Nevada. He owned a business. Uh, He was a good person, no criminal path. I mean, he was just a good family man, loving father, uh, trying to make Mm -hmm. a go at it. Ultimately, what happens is he gets the court worked up because of of his insistence on some of the stuff. And one of the other parties decides to look into his background, and they realize that he's not here legally. So, (laughs) yeah. The other side tells the judge. The judge, who's already annoyed at the guy, now says he's got this obligation to report him. Ultimately, they report him. One day after court, immigration is there to pick him up, and they put him on a plane, and they tell him not to come back. So now he's over there. His wife and kids are here. He tries to come back, so he flies into Newark in New Jersey. When they saw the manifest, they picked him up, they arrested him, they put him in jail, then they sent him back, and he's been trying to get back into the country ever since. And, you know, it's been seven, eight years now. Wow. So they're <laughs> nothing to fool around with. Oh, yeah. It's amazing what happens when they actually enforce the law. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I, I had to rethink my answer on that. I do live in constant fear like that. Um, I live with three females, and we have one bathroom. I'm considering a second. <laughs> All right, so you know so what someone could just burst in. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of not necessarily enforcing the law, or at least making your own, depending on where you live, and that's perfectly legal, apparently, D.C. legalizing marijuana despite threats from Congress. And honestly, does anyone respond to a threat from Congress right now? The District of Columbia on Thursday disregarded pressures from Congress and went forward with legalizing possession of marijuana after a voter-approved initiative. Notwithstanding warnings of repercussions by leaders of Congress, if you legalize marijuana, we're going to do nothing. Uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser affirmed that marijuana would be legalized as approved by nearly two-thirds of the voters, who may have may not have been users, in November. Although Congress appeared to block the initiative in December, district leaders claimed the legislation was enacted before and is thus unaffected, even though it did not come into effect until Thursday. Although it is unlikely that the Department of Justice, because they don't enforce other laws, would enforce the penalties of jail's time for district officials for complying with the newly enacted laws, as they are in opposition with federal legislation, just like they are everywhere else. Congress could sue the city over its actions, though. (laughs) The, the 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 hilarity of Congress threatening anyone that they're going to do anything is yeah. just beyond me. Yep. <laughs> but in all total, I mean, look at the larger picture here, Peter. I mean, how long is this going to go on where little boroughs and, and cities and states be, 
continue to pass a marijuana possession law or usage law that is at odds with federal legislation, and what's next? Where's the slippery slope end? Well, I think everybody knows that at some point, um, somebody is going to provide the federal government with a report, and it is going to open their eyes because it's going to talk about the benefits of recreational marijuana usage. And then they're going to say, oh, if we had only had this report, we would have made it legal years ago. So I think I think that this is a, a train that cannot be stopped. I think you're going to see more and more states legalizing it. I mean, I, I think that within the next two to five years, I think the vast majority, maybe some of the states will, will hold out, but the vast majority of the states are going to legalize it. And then that's going to be interesting because here you've got a scenario where the states may pressure the federal government into something that they've been opposed to for years and years, which would really be an interesting uh, scenario. Oh, yeah. yeah, And that's, I don't say that's the way it's supposed to work, but that's kind of the process, unfortunately. And it's, it's just whether or not and how long it's going to take, like you said, for the feds to wake up and recognize that this is the will of the people, and not, not unlike prohibition back in the, you know, the 20s. So, Yeah. Yeah, but you know, to to see how it's going to play out. I mean, the other thing is that they could just keep it as uh, an illegal substance, never use it. But then you're going to have the um, you know somebody who enforces it, and then there's going to be a big to do about civil rights sure. violations and whatever. But um, I mean, there's no way to stop the the marijuana express. I mean, that seems to be you know <laughs> a sure bet. Yes, it seems to be chugging right along. Um, and again, yeah, I'm just I'm interested. My my first thought is okay, it's marijuana this time. At what point, or is is there a you know you being someone more knowledgeable of the law the most, is there a point at which states can't pass legislation that supersedes federal law? You know, they can pass it, but whether or not, like for example, I mean, you still have the issue in Colorado where it's it's legal mm-hmm. for recreational usage, but the feds can enforce it if they so choose. So I think it becomes the issue, not the law. I think it becomes what is it that you're fighting over? Um, And that's where I think you could could see, if you wanted to to write a a novel about this, you could see how you could have a very totalitarian federal government state that is enforcing arbitrary laws against the will of the people where the states rise up and the next thing you know, there's a revolution. I mean, you want to write a novel? There, I just gave it to you. Um, <laughs> but you could see that. You could and see start a revolution. Writing this down. <laughs> you write that down good. Um, you could see that 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 could be the way things could go. And I think that while that's certainly very fanciful, um, the idea is there. I mean, what's the difference between uh, you know a group of colonists all supporting the fact that they don't want to pay unfair taxes and that they don't want to be taxed without being represented and then they sure. overthrow their leader. I mean, so what is the difference between 50 states saying, wait a minute, I don't think that the federal government is acting in our best interest and the, the people that we elect and put as our representatives in the federal government don't seem to be supporting us. Here is what we are going to do and now you come and stop us. So um, again, though, I think it, it, it hinges on the issue if the issue is something that might be a violation of federal law, but it's not that 
big a deal. Like, I don't think marijuana is going to be that big a deal for the federal government to sort of, of shift. But if it was something else, like, you know, um, they don't want to pay the IRS anymore. Well, that, I think, is a different <laughs> story. So I think it really hinges on the issue. And uh, like I said, I think that it's easy for the feds to fall back on. Oh, well, we've, we've conducted some studies in the wake of all these developments within the states, and we've realized that there's a benefit to marijuana. So now it's going to be included in every box of Frosted Flakes. And then they, they can kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of backpedal off of their position. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's an interesting. You know, look, you think about what the dangers are as to what the federal government is doing at this time. Yeah. So, well, on to brighter news. In Hollywood, music industry, Stevie Wonder native of Saginaw, Michigan, I might add, sued for $7 million. Man, I bet he didn't see this coming. Oh. Courthousenews.com. Sorry. Sorry, it was too easy. Uh, court, <laughs> courthousenews.com. Maybe he did once you read the story. Uh, the widow of Stevie Wonder's longtime entertainment attorney is uptight. Is that all right? She claims the musician owes her $7 million in royalty fees. Susan Strack was the widow, widow of... Johanan Vigoda, who worked for Wonder for 40 years as his entertainment transactional attorney and managed Wonder's Joe Beat music catalog, according to her February 26th federal complaint. She claims her husband helped Wonder escape from an oppressive working relationship with record companies to having one of the most lucrative contract terms in the music industry, and Wonder agreed to pay him a 6% fee on royalties, quote-unquote, forever, in perpetuity. Five other entities are also named as defendants, including Black Bull Music, Taurus Productions, Sawandi Music, and Stevland Morris Music. Payments continued for about 20 months after Vigoda died, so they've established a precedent. But Strack says Wonder decided to break the deals and instructed all music companies to cease payments to Strack and Vigoda's estate in the mid-2013. Strack says he excuse me, that she made every possible effort to persuade Wonder and the record companies to reinstate the 6% fee and even offered to accept pennies on the dollar for the actual value. But Wonder refused, she said. She also seeks damages, punitive damages for breach of written agreement, intentional interference in the contract, and conversion. Strack also sees, or seeks declaratory judgment that Wonder and his heirs and successors must continue paying her and Bogoder's heirs and successors the six percent fee, cementing the forever statement. Is it valid? It's going to depend on the contract, and this just proves that you must read every word in every contract that you sign, or in Stevie's case, have somebody read it to you. But <laughs> it, it, it hinges on the contract, whether or not. I mean, clearly, because of the fact that he paid um, this guy up until he died. That seems to suggest that there was some agreement and that he did honor the agreement. So, And then 20 months after he died as well. Right. Now, the interesting thing is, is there an agreement that forces or subjects Wonder uh, to make payments to Vigoda's estate? That's the issue we mm -hmm. don't know. Or is there some sure. you know, exclusion in that agreement? Perhaps if the estate does something that uh, would trigger a cessation of payment. So... This is, well, you know, here's, here's an interesting uh, legal point procedurally. The declaratory judgment that she's filed, um, it is in and of itself a lawsuit. Sometimes you can have a declaratory judgment as a standalone lawsuit, but more often than not, you have a lawsuit 
And then within that lawsuit, you file a declaratory judgment action. And a declaratory judgment action is where you ask the court to decide an issue. This we see a lot in insurance litigation where, mm-hmm. you know, an insurance company is going to say, we don't think we have to cover you, so we're going to file a declaratory judgment action. They refer to it in, in law as a DJ action. We're going to file that, okay. and we're going to ask the court to decide this sub-issue because if we don't have to cover, then we're out of this case. So what she's trying to do here is to get the, the court to look at the contract and first make the determination as to whether or not the contract requires that wonder pay the estate ongoing. So that's where this is going to go relatively quickly. Because a declaratory judgment, you still have evidence, you still have a trial presentation, but it's a limited issue. So this sort of thing is going to go more quickly than regular full-blown litigation. And then we'll know. Because if the court says, no, he's not obligated to pay you ongoing because, A, you did something, or, B, it's not in the contract, then it's over. whole case is over. Oh, true. So, so it's pretty you know, straightforward. It's, it's what was written down, and that's the way it is. Just look at the contract. Yeah. Now, you know, in these cases, you want to you want to say, oh, this is an easy case. But what often happens is that you're going to have the contract, and then you're going to have all of this supplemental evidence that someone's going to bring in. I had a phone conversation with Stevie, and here's what he told me. Uh, you know, my <laughs> friend was having lunch, and she overheard Stevie saying this. And it just goes on and on. And then you're going to get all of this other stuff, but ultimately it's going to come back to what's in that written contract. Hmm. That's and that's. Do you think? Yeah, I guess like you know, like you said, it's it's. If it were that easy, if it were that easy as looking at the contract, it wouldn't have gotten this far. Right. Right. You know, you, so. you'd show them the contract and you'd say, "Look, Stevie, here's what you signed. Here's what you agreed to. And if you're not paying us, we're going to sue you, and you've got no defense." Uh, I would I would suspect, and we'll we'll try to follow up on this story because I think it's interesting. I'd like to see what happens. Sure. Um. I, I think that in this case, there's probably more to it than that. Although, as I've said many times, you can sue anybody for anything in this country. All you need to have is a good faith basis to file the complaint. So she has <laughs> belief that he owes her money. She files the complaint. Sure. Who knows? Well, it'll come down to what was written, and superstition will have no part of it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Two shows tonight. Try the veal. <laughs> you should reach out to Stevie. I mean, you seem to be a big fan. <laughs> yeah. uh, that wraps up our hour. Does it? Well, let's see. You have. Uh, we what? We've got two more. You think we can get through it? Yeah, two more. I we can we can bump on them real quick. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because these are these are relevant situations, especially to the. You know, the people that pay attention to things happening everywhere. Um, American sniper killer will appeal. Of course, courthouse news telling us that attorneys for the man who murdered American sniper Chris Kyle and his friend Chad Littleworth said they will appeal the verdict because their client, Eddie Ray Routh, couldn't get a fair trial in the small town. State jury convicted Routh of capital murder on Tuesday and on Friday. The Routh's attorneys said they will appeal. Now, they, they, they filed in there. They had the, the venue was Erath County down in, in the uh, in Texas. And the, the funny, interesting thing is, is that they're going to end up in the, the 11th Court of Appeals, which is generally a pretty conservative 
court. Uh, prosecutors right. said Ralph was a deliberate killer who wanted the who waited for the opportune time to shoot the two friends in cold blood, and that came when Kyle's magazine emptied during target practice, and he then shot both men in the back. Uh, Erath County District Attorney Alan Nash issued a statement stating the trial was fair for both the state and the defendant. You know, life sentence. He didn't get uh, he didn't get the death penalty. He got life sentence. I think I'd probably yeah. take that and shake the dice and go home. There's no way. There's no way this guy ever wins an appeal ever. A, you've got the movie right, and who? <laughs> come on. When you're shooting Bradley Cooper, do you really think you have a chance in hell? No way. And uh, but you know, uh, that, not in the, not in the context of of how this is portrayed out bigger than life. No, and and, and to say that it's unfair that everybody's tainted. Well, well, maybe. Um, but what are you going to do about it? I mean, the entire country, the movie's been out there. People who've seen it, people know the story. Um, sure. Chances are, in this case, they, they, they got it right to begin with. I mean, you're going to have to appeal because if you're going to be um, in, in prison for life, you're not going to appeal. You're not going to try. So, I mean, I, I think that it's just um, an effort to try to maybe limit the sentence. Who knows? But no, no way, no way he wins an appeal. No way. Well, they're pushing for the insanity plea at this point. Yeah, I think that that's why that question, that doubt in jurors' mind is why he didn't get the death penalty. But the fact is that he still did this, and I I don't think that anyone's going to have sympathy for him. I I just don't. No, and it seems from conversations he knew it was wrong. He said it was wrong. He knew it. Yep. And he killed the wrong guy. You know, a guy that was a hero, (laughs) a guy that was going to have a book, a movie. I mean, you just you killed the wrong guy. Who's your targets better? Yeah. <laughs> you had, oh, speaking shot of the owner of the gun range, maybe this wouldn't be so bad for you. <laughs> Why did you pick him? Ah, all right. Yeah. Now, uh, NFL back at it again. Adrian Peterson wins a reversal of suspension by the league. Bloomberg telling us the Minnesota Vikings running back AP Adrian Peterson indefinite suspension from the NFL was overturned by a federal judge, potentially clearing the way for his return to the game. Man, talk about jumping way too quick on this guy. The NFL did. Peterson banned in November following his Texas conviction in an abuse case involving his four-year-old son. He basically told him to go cut a switch and then beat him with it. Uh, Sanction came after the league was widely criticized for its failure to punish Ray Rice very strongly. The Baltimore Ravens guy who beat up his wife in the elevator. Rice, in November, had his indefinite suspension lifted after an arbitrator ruled in his favor. The NFLPA sued the 32 league in December that after arbitrator Harold Henderson upheld Peterson's open-ended punishment. A judge in St. Paul, Minnesota, on Tuesday ruled Henderson exceeded his authority and strayed beyond the issues submitted to him by the union. U.S. District Judge David Doty also faulted the arbitrator for retroactively applying a new disciplinary policy adopted after the incident involving Rice. NFL says, NFL says we aren't going to give up. We're going to appeal. Give it up, guys. Yeah, really. Drop the ball, figuratively and literally. Yep. Yeah, and, and I so, think that uh, I think that this, this goes nowhere, too. You know, I, I look, I mean, people have personal feelings about Adrian Peterson and Rice, but the fact is, is that this entire situation was created by the NFL. They didn't Oh, yeah, it. absolutely. You know, and now in in the wake of all this criticism and requests for people to step down, and now they're going to come back and they say, "Look how uh, look how aggressively we're pursuing this." Well, what you should do is learn from this, 
put new policies and protocols in place and then enforce them. Let this go. This is this is stupid. Yeah, well, that's the NFL for you. They yeah. they haven't they, they are uh, trying to think when the last time they did something right actually. Um, because they've been they've been hamstrung by a lot of poor decisions, and it's and it's it's not only just the major stuff like this. You look at some of the minor stuff that they've been stepping on, not to mince any play on words with uh, Ndamukong and Sue, um, but they just have been stepping in it left and right for a long time, and I'm surprised they've been getting away with their selective enforcement of rules and yeah. fines and punishments as long as they have been. And I don't, th- I don't think this is going to change anything with them. I think they still do it they, because they can. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, th- this is one of the most powerful sporting entities in the world, you know, and I think that that's what it is. I think it's – look, this, this is the same thing that you see in, in super big business too because when you're that big and powerful, you can do whatever you want, and people want your product. They want what you have, and, and – States need it. I mean, just think about how much revenue is derived in the individual states from NFL football. So, you know, what, NFL can do anything they want, and it's become and not even pay taxes either. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a really, really scary scenario when you see it because, for the most part, everybody just thinks football is a sport. It's fun. It's but you're you're talking about multi-billion-dollar business. And and you know now you don't have. Look at it as a corporation. This this corporation doesn't have to follow rules. This corporation doesn't have to do what other corporations. How is that fair? Oh no, because they're a nonprofit. Yeah. I don't know if that's the reason, but but that's 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 you know look at you need to start a new company and just pay yourself an exorbitant amount of salary, and then just any of your profit goes to uh, to to uh, uh, charities. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing with with nonprofits in general. We had somebody that that had inquired about that, and it just seemed so disingenuous because the idea was, well, we can take a large salary, right, and we can pay this and we can pay that. Uh, So if I I spend all the money on this event that I want to host, and then I pay myself and everybody that works there, and, you know, at the end of the day, if there's $1,000 left over for the charity, but we took in a total of a million, is that okay? You know, and that's unfortunately the way a lot of these these people, a lot of the scammers out there, try to use non for profits. I'm not saying this is how the NFL does, but just picking up on that because this was something that happened recently. Um, you know, you, you really have to be careful with what you do for non non for profit. I mean, some of the the large not 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 uh, not for profits like the March of Dimes, they mm-hmm. receive a ton of yeah, criticism. Yeah. Because the the people are making six figure salaries, and then at the end of the day, what do you ultimately give to the charity? You know, another one that's big for this is uh, the Real Housewives. Uh, especially there was there was not that I watch it. I just want to clarify. No, of course that. not. Not of course that not. I watch it. So um, I've been told. Yes. So I, I do have a wife who may watch it. I may have walked through the <laughs> living room while it was on. Anyway, um, you know, a lot of these women that, that host these charity events, when you actually look into it, because there was this one that I was, I was really curious about, um, to see exactly what was donated to the charity. And the uh-huh. event 
like a million dollar event, and it was less than ten thousand dollars that went to the charity. Oh, you're kidding me! No, and, and it's like, well, all right, so you've got publicity, you've got all these people out here supporting the cause, and you're taking the money and you're you're reimbursing yourself because you had to pay the tent, you had to pay the DJ, you had to pay for the food, all the linens, and at the end of the day, ten grand goes to the charity. How is that right? So, I mean, I think that a lot of times people use that as a as a way to make themselves better. A lot of companies do it, too. A lot of companies will um, show their donation efforts just mm-hmm. to bolster the uh, the image of the company. And I, I don't like I don't like that. You know, we donate to a couple of charities, but they're they're personal. You know, we donate to some heart charities because my son has a heart issue. I like mm-hmm. cigars. So I donate to Cigars for Warriors. It's not meant to be a popular thing. Oh, look what we do. But a lot of these companies out there, they use charity donations and nonprofit stuff as a way to make themselves look better. And I think that when it's disingenuous, people can see through it. And there's no point in doing that. If you're, you know, A lot of times, a lot of a, a small, mid-sized business owners will come to me and say, hey, listen, I've got this idea. A, we get a tax deduction. B, you know, I can get one of those giant checks and take my picture, giving a check to somebody and put it in the paper. That's the wrong <laughs> reason to do it. I mean, I wanted a giant check, too. That's not the point. But I actually found a company. I was looking for um, for something for the studio, um, and I found a company that prints the big checks. And I thought, could I give myself <laughs> a big check? They're just so cool. I've always wanted one. I don't know what to do with it, but... Get 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 yourself made and, and have it paid to cash from your bank account and, and hang it on the wall behind your desk. I might do that. <laughs> Able I to cash. always wanted a super big check. Because <laughs> I make the big money. <laughs> oh, you know, one more thing I just want to mention before yep. um, before we wrap up today. Nothing to do with law or business at all, but um, are you a Star Trek fan? I am. I am. Not all a right, trekkie, so, but a fan. All right, so so am I, and you know it was sad to hear about Leonard Nimoy because you know, I liked him. He's very um, very unique individual, but very down to earth. Yeah, <laughs> some might say. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. his, his head was always in the stars. Um, <laughs> That's right. But have you seen all the criticism about William Shatner for not going? I to the have. I, you can't do anything today. <sighs> I, I saw that just before we got on, and I thought to myself, you know, I, it's not his mom, number one, and he's not going anywhere. What's the, I mean, yikes. He, yeah. You can't win for losing, man. No, and you know what I think that, that I mean, like, there's so much negativity now. Um, they call him Captain Jerk, but <laughs> yeah. he had an obligation. It was a charitable yeah. organization. Right, it was like the Red Cross, I think, and yeah. and he, you know, committed to doing that, and he said that his his children would be the representatives of the family. Right. I don't know. I think they're giving him a hard time for absolutely nothing. And if he just if he just stepped out on the Red Cross, they'd have been complaining about that. Yeah. So how do you win? I I really I was kind of disgusted with that. I mean, maybe he should have said that he already attended the funeral in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. And that might have satisfied people. <laughs> Say right? goodbye to him before. <laughs> already done this. He wasn't I, even supposed to come back. <laughs> that's right. 
And then I had to deal with him as he was evolving back into the Spock that I knew. I don't know. It's I like I it's, didn't it's, even know him. It's like it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. you can't. We can't wait for losing anymore. It doesn't matter. You do what makes you feel good. Yeah, and you know what? Sometimes you've got obligations that prevent you yeah. from doing things that you might want to do. But um, I don't know. Give him a break, please. <laughs> Got more Priceline commercials commercials to shoot. Yeah, so. yeah, you, yeah. Wait till they end up pulling that sponsorship from him because he didn't go to the funeral. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's unfair. <laughs> I really do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's received a lot of criticism for for everything, but this I, I don't think that uh, it's fair to do. Well, I think that's probably the do- most criticism was for that album he released, though. Yes. <laughs> Well, I didn't realize it until I was watching the tribute to Leonard Nimoy. I didn't realize that Leonard Nimoy put out some songs. Oh, really? I didn't know that either. Oh, it was bad. It was it was Hi. it was up there with with Captain Kirk's. It was bad. <laughs> what, did, what did William Shatner do? Tambourine Man. Um, it was Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Oh, yeah. I remember. I remember hearing that. Yeah, that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> but. All right, well, at least we ended on a light note. Poor yeah, absolutely. Leonard. Poor William Shatner. Live really. long and prosper, man. Live. Yeah. <laughs> it's always those that are left behind that feel the brunt. Remember, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Yeah, that's, that's or the one. Wise, <laughs> wise things. Wise. I try to get that through people's heads, and they just don't get it. That's right. All right, Bob, that's going to do it Star Trek. this week. Um, make sure you tune in next week. Tomorrow we're going to start back up on the YouTube channel and on uh, on uh, UTL Radio with the live legal Q&A, so tune in, in to that. Uh, we've got a series of questions already set up for that show, but if you have questions that you'd like to ask, um, you can email them in, you can tweet them, put them on Facebook. Also, we're making some changes to the website, and there's going to be uh, a, an option where you can call in and leave a voicemail with your legal question or any questions that you have that you want to discuss. Maybe it's something that you heard on today's show and you have a question about it or you want to touch on it or you just want to give your opinion. Um, You're going to have the ability to leave a voicemail that's going to go directly to the show, and we're going to be able to use that if you want on air so we can play your question and give you the answer. We could, you know, post your comment, whatever it is. So, Look for that. Uh, we're hoping to have that up and running by the middle of the week. So that's going to be exciting. And we are lining up new guests for our Thursday show, which obviously that has been on hiatus too, the Understanding Business show where we go through the uh, the interviews with people. And so I, I would say give it another week, and then we'll be back on track with the Thursday show um, with a lot of exciting guests. So you know, don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. And then you've always got me and Bob to uh, sustain you until everything else gets up and running. Isn't that right, Bob? That's great. <laughs> We're giving life. Where there was none before. That's that's right. All right. So that's going to do it. So uh, thanks for listening. For those of you who download this later, thanks for downloading. Make sure that you subscribe to um, the podcast on iTunes. Make sure you also subscribe to um, our our YouTube page so you can see and be aware of these live broadcasts. Oh, I forgot to mention to you, Bob, we were also streaming live on YouTube with this broadcast. Last week's 
live stream seemed to go well, so we did it again this week. Um, but we're going to work on on getting you on at the same time, so it's more entertaining and people don't have to have to just stare at me. So I better next- pick up some of my mess here in the studio. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll talk to you next week, Bob. Everybody else, yeah, tune sir. in tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern, for live legal Q&A. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Remember that there's power in understanding the law. Earning your degree online doesn't have to be without the college experience. To find your purpose, it takes support from those around you. GCU's leadership offers over three decades of experience in delivering real-world degree programs online. GCU's online class size averages fewer than 17 students with full-time faculty. Integrate your education with your faith and Christian worldview. Welcome to the family. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University Online.